0: Good morning church. That was a great response. I'm always grateful for the opportunity to preach. Pastor Jerry, thank you. And thank you for pointing out all of the jungle creatures. To be honest with you, I've never preached with such a large elephant in the room. come on, that was dumb. But we have some good news to talk about today. We have this little thing that's been given to us, and it's called the gospel. And it is the power unto salvation. And it conveys how Jesus Christ has the ability to save even the most revolting of sinners. And if you are a Christian, if you have been saved by faith in Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to have a new mind given to you that has new, new thoughts implanted to you, that allows you to think differently about money and your future, that has taught you how to love others before you even consider yourself. Yes, the gospel changes us. If you are a guest and perhaps a non-Christian or perhaps a church attendee for many years and you are not a Christian, I want to encourage you today that you are in fact surrounded by many former non-Christians. Men and women who used to sit in seats and had no hope who didn't even know the power of this Jesus that we are talking about. Our prayer for you this week and every week as you hear these words is that you will receive them, that you will consider them, that the Spirit of God will open up your mind and your heart to consider glorious things perhaps that you've never gazed upon before. And so we have much to consider today. Yes, Jesus changes people. He can take a drug addict and place him in Nashville, Tennessee and allow him to pastor a people today, a man by the name of Robbie Gallaty. He can take a tax collector named Matthew who was hated by his people and transform him into a disciple of the Lord Jesus himself and an author of the very gospel account that we read in our local churches. He can take a pagan by the name of Abraham, he can give him a new mind and a new heart, and a promise that he will be the father of many nations. He can take a wild, scoffing teenager named Hudson Taylor and turn him into a missionary that has literally brought the gospel china and he can take each of us whatever roles responsibilities vocations that we are in and transform our hearts and our minds and allow us to be ambassadors from another kingdom this is the power of the gospel perhaps no greater testimony to this than the apostle paul whose life we will examine a little bit today if you are a non-Christian, I hope that you consider the, the life of the Apostle Paul. The argument could be made that he himself could be the best apologetic in all of Christendom for the power of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we continue our series for the church we we'll begin in verse 12, and I will read it over you. I thank him who has given me strength, Paul says, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but... That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's us. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. My child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Thus says the Lord. If we were to take the context of this passage, we consider what Pastor Jared introduced last week in this book, that Timothy was left in Ephesus by Paul, and his responsibility and his instruction was to teach men not to teach any other doctrine than the doctrines of the pure and unadulterated gospel. This is why he was left there. We see this in the first part of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. And as we will see and as we've just read, the second kind of portion of this entrusting of this charge is found in verses 18 through 20. But sandwiched in between those charges, Paul breaks into a personal testimony which ultimately leads to praise. If you're reading it, it feels kind of random, but it's not in the midst of it, you can kind of go along with him in his train of thought and see that he is considering the very glorious gospel that has saved him as he writes about it. It is powerful. The main idea for us to consider from this passage today, if we can kind of break it into a bite-sized piece for us, one that I hope will retain in your hearts as we've prayed for you this week, and two, that you can perhaps even revisit it this week as you consider this text. But this is it. The gospel is worth defending because of its glorious power to save. Let's say it again. The gospel is worth defending because of its glorious power to save. There are two themes that we want to consider today. One, we want to know why it's important for us to defend this gospel. But before we can even get there, we see this praise that is exploding from the Apostle Paul as he is in char- as he's entrusting Timothy with this responsibility to fight for and wage the good warfare for defending and protecting the very pure gospel that Paul is writing about. This passage gives us great insight into the very character of God, his patience towards us the scope and the scale of his incredible grace and mercy and we have the benefit church to examine this life of paul to see how this glorious gospel has been lavished on him as an example to encourage our hearts today to believe that it's true And it is a glorious passage. The first thing that we want to consider out of the two is this. We praise God for the gospel. We praise God for the gospel, and this praise for the gospel never stops. Now, ultimately, this is where Paul ends in this first section of the passage. But before he even gets there, we see that he begins in verse 12, just lavishing thanksgiving onto the Christ for what he has done in Paul's life. And if we are like Paul, we should marvel at the mercy and grace given to us in Christ, as Paul is doing in this passage The problem is, if we do not marvel at the kindness of God towards us in Christ, then it can lead us to a place where we will see no need for the Christ. We can't even begin thinking about praising God until we consider what it is that he has saved us from. So look with me in verse 12 and observe how Paul is overflowing with this gratitude. He mentions Christ four times in the first part of the section in verses 12, 14, 15, and 16. He is giving all praise and credit and glory to Lord Jesus. He mentions that the Lord Jesus has specifically given him two things, grace and mercy. And these two things have manifested themselves in different ways. We see in verse 13, but I received mercy. Mercy. Verse 14, grace of our Lord overflows for me, Paul says. Verse 16, but I received the mercy for this reason. Now, grace is receiving something that you do not deserve. We do not deserve to be saved. We do not deserve to have Jesus as our treasure We do not deserve one another and being able to have fellowship with one another as the saints commune each and every single week. We do not deserve these things, yet they've been given to us. That is the grace of God. We have also, as Paul has written, we have received mercy. Mercy is not receiving exactly what it is that we deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve separation from a holy God for all of eternity. And Paul is talking about how he has received mercy and he has been brought near to this Christ. We see in this passage, as this kind of building up to the way that we can praise God, we see exactly what Paul has received in grace and mercy from the Lord. Look with me in verse 12. He has received strength from God despite being unqualified he has received this strength we're going to get into paul's testimony here in a moment but he was a pharisee yet he was given strength from the lord jesus christ we see in philippians 4:13 that he can do all these things through christ who gives him strength there is nothing inside of paul in his carnal flesh that allows him to be a part of the gospel ministry There is no strength that he has that focuses him on eternal things apart from the work of God. We see in the second part of verse 12 that he has also received an appointing from God. He received strength from God. He has also received an appointing from God as it says that he has received an appointing and a ministry that he is responsible for. This ministry that he has is one of apostleship, where he goes out and he spreads the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been given these things, and he marvels at it. He's amazed by it. He recognizes that it's been given to him for this service. It's the very word from deacon that we get. He he serves the church. He's been given responsibility despite being completely ill-equipped. We see in this passage, verse 13, he received mercy from God despite being ignorant, now, Paul was not ignorant. He was a trained man. He was rising up the ranks in Judaism. He was studied and learned under Gamaliel. He had everything working from him. He was zealous about Yahweh and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet he did not know God because he did not know Christ. Paul has all these things given to him. And as we will see here, despite not deserving these things, the grace of God was bestowed upon the uh, the Saul of Tarsus, despite not understanding what it is that he needed. Saul was... Working his life and he was living his life and he was ministering the best way he knew how, and God saved him. This is not mean in his ignorance that everybody's sins are forgiven when they're in ignorance, but if you are in Christ, then we can all relate with Paul, recognizing there was a day in which we did not understand the gospel, and then there was a day in which we did. And this grace and this mercy was lavished upon him it's powerful but it all comes to a culmination as we see in verse 13 and 14 that he received grace from God despite what Paul was he was a blasphemer he was a persecutor and an insolent man he is saying these things about himself and they have ramifications big ramifications He is admitting that the very things that I have received, the strength from God, this assignment from God to be about his service is a gift because I am a blasphemer. And not only am I a a blasphemer, we see in Acts chapter 26 that he's actually responsible for trying to get other Christians to blaspheme as well. So he's guilty of sin and receiving something he shouldn't deserve, which is life. And at the same time, he's trying, before he was converted, to get Christians to blaspheme the very name of Jesus. And he's admitting both of these things. It's amazing to see the the scope and the breadth of the mercy of God towards him. He also admits that he's a persecutor, a violent man. And the scriptures have this rap sheet of all the things that he did against the church. Listen to some of them. Acts chapter eight, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He was dragged off men and women who committed them to prison. Acts chapter nine, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Acts chapter 22, being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted the way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Acts chapter 26, I punished them often in all synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury, in his own words, raging fury against them, I persecuted them to foreign cities. Galatians 1, I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. He wanted to wipe the gospel and this Christ and this teaching off the face of the earth. He was a terrorist. Can you imagine in your mind how he treated Christians? The verocity in which he'd beat down doors and kill and take people to prison. The boasting and the reveling that he had in being responsible for the very death of one of the very first deacons in the church and the stoning of Stephen. He was there and he was reveling. Paul is responsible for going into Jerusalem and scattering the very church that he would one day be a part of. This man hated the king. He wanted nothing to do with the gospel. Absolutely nothing to do with the gospel. And if you're a Christian today, Do you remember those days when you wanted nothing to do with the gospel? Yet in the midst of it, some really good news came. Really good news came to public enemy number one of the gospel. The one who hated it first. Look with me in verse 13. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This grace flowed for Paul, meaning toward Paul. These are gifts of God that were given to him. He had nothing to do with it. He received faith, which means he was persuaded of the divine truths immediately, He was given love by the very one who deemed it necessary that he need love. He did not have these things. In fact, he was doing what he thought was the will of God to wipe off this false teaching going on in the world. Yet the mercy of God began to overflow for him. And on his way to Damascus, this very, very blind man spiritually became blind physically when the glory of the Lord shone up on him, as it says in Acts chapter 9. And he hears the voice of the Lord, which is, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in that moment, the very blind spiritual man was given sight. And he says, who are you, Lord? He recognizes immediately who it is. And all of a sudden, he was saved. He was brought into the kingdom of God despite being the least, the most random of conversions. He was on his way to Damascus and he would have landed there had God not encountered him and given him the flow of love, both in faith, and in truth, and it saved him. And we would be wise to listen and heed the words of Paul that are said in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost He says this saying is trustworthy and it's true. Listen to what I am saying. These men are teaching these false doctrines and I want you to watch over them, Timothy. Do you remember that I was a persecutor, a blasphemer and a violent man, but Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am the foremost. It is the good news. It means he stepped into the cosmos that he created and he was wrapped in flesh and he saved people who didn't even know that God had a right to their life. The scriptures tell us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And each of us need our sins forgiven. And this is exactly what Jesus did. He stepped into the created cosmos to save sinners who could not save themselves. And as you can see in the text, he's thanking the Lord in verse 12. He's being reminded of who he was, persecutor, blasphemer, insolent man. And he says this saying that I am telling you is true that Jesus Christ stepped into the world to save sinners, which I am the foremost. There is no reason that I would have ever stopped my old life in Judaism. I had everything that it had to offer. I was rising in the ranks. I had favor amongst my brothers. I could have one day been perhaps the high priest of the nation. Yet in a moment, I considered it all rubbish, he says in Philippians 3. Dung is the word for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Unbelievable. He saves sinners. And then he says something really gnarly. of which I am the foremost, he says. And the language there is not saying I used to be the worst sinner. He's saying I am the worst sinner. Remember in the context in verse nine, he says, I've seen men who are unholy and profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, he's listing off these sins, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And then as he's considering this gospel that has been entrusted to him in verse 11, he busts into exactly what he was. He proclaims the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And then he admits to Timothy, of which I am the foremost. I am worse than all of these. All of these I've just rattled off. I am worse. I am the worst of them. I am the example. I am the one who is the premier, the most notable one. It's it's, it's as if he... is is looking at the glory of Christ more and more, and he's recognizing as he stares upon the glory of Christ and how the glory of Christ is shining into the caverns of his heart, he's recognizing more and more and more and more and more about the depths of the depravity of his own human nature. And he says boldly, I am the foremost of these sinners. I think it's true, church, often, and I'm guilty of this, I was studying the text this week. It began to sit in my heart and I could not shake it. But so often, because I have been saved in Christ, I start looking at all the people in the world who Paul has rattled off here. People who kill their parents, murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuals. And I think in my mind, I'm Giving you a glimpse into my own sinfulness. At least I'm not like them. And Paul says, I'm worse. And the gospel has made me aware of this. It has shown into the caverns of my heart that, yes, I am a blasphemer of the name of Yahweh, I am a sinner who tried to wipe off Christianity from the face of the earth, but he is still considering himself that as he gazes upon the glory of Christ. And my question to you is this, have you considered that in your own heart? Because if Paul, who has seen the face of Jesus and has been transformed by the power of the gospel, And has the spirit of God dwelling in him unlike any other in church history is saying these things? And we are to take note. We are to consider the scope of this. But notice what Paul is saying in verse 16. He says, but I receive this mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in me for eternal life. That's us. So this mercy and this grace has been lavished on public enemy of the cross, number one, so that you and I could understand the scope of God's grace in our lives. Paul was headed to Damascus, and I'm sure none of us have been headed there recently. But I'm telling you, we're heading somewhere for destruction. And if you are in Christ, you have been met by the living and resurrected Lord. And he has allowed you to see the depths of your carnality and the heights of his glory. And he's working out this perfect patience in Paul, so that we, church, can marvel at who God is in his essence and his nature towards his people. We have to consider that there were days when Paul was ravaging the church, he was killing Christians, knocking down doors, stoning Stephen, and God did not stop him he allowed him to do these things against his precious bride to display the patience of the glory of the Lord to him. This patience was ongoing until the very moment when Paul was on the road to Damascus and the Lord came down and he saved him. Isn't that unbelievable? Show me another defense for the gospel than that. This guy had everything. He's he's going along the way that he can't see. The gospel is really given to him and then he lives this life where he's being beaten to an inch of his his life. He's being stoned. He's probably even been killed and then brought back to life so he can keep preaching the gospel. He has nothing. He doesn't even have a home. Home. Been shipwrecked. People betrayed him and spoke against him. He has nothing that the world has to offer, and he considers it the blessing of his life to have this Jesus. There is nothing in the world that has that kind of power. Nothing. Do you marvel? at the king of ages like that? Because Paul did. Notice as he's thinking about this, notice as he is reminded by his own sin and his depravity, that he begins thinking about the mercy of God that's been given to him in Christ. And as he's thinking on it, it leads him to write in the middle of his letter, a song or praise, a doxology to the King of Kings. Look with me in verse 7 to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory and forever and ever. Amen. It's like he can't write something else until he praises God for what he's done in his life. He praises him all the things he's been given. He recognizes him as the king before the foundation of the world. He recognizes him as the one who cannot die. Like John 10 says, the one who has the indestructible life. He recognizes him as invisible. None of us are able to stand before the glory of God and survive. Praise God for Christ who is the expression of his radiant glory. He is the one True God, who is undivided and unique. And he bursts into this praise and this glory. It's incredible. He's praising the Lord from his very heart. Do you marvel at the King of Ages because of his kindness to you in Christ? You cannot marvel at the King of Ages without first considering exactly what he's done without recognizing that you too, and me, myself, are a blasphemer. Perhaps we were sexually immoral, disobedient, and dishonoring to our parents. It's really good, it's a really good exercise for us to be reminded of exactly what it is that we have been saved from, so that we can praise the one who has saved our lives. If we do not marvel at the depths of what he has saved us from, we will not marvel at his majesty. You have to have the cross first before you praise and glory. This is what Paul is doing. You can just see it on the pages of the scriptures. If you are a Christian today and you're stuck in a rut, or you're not finding satisfaction in Christ, Let me appeal to you to marvel at the depths of Christ's mercy to you. Consider these things. Be reminded, as Paul was reminding himself and Timothy, of what it is that you were doing on your road before you had an interaction with the resurrected Lord. Paul references it several times in the book of Acts. And it begins to just change him forensically from the inside out over and over again. Christ Christ doesn't make sense. The good news doesn't make sense unless we have the bad news first, right? But we're given this bad news so that we can understand the good news. If you are not a Christian, would you consider the testimony of this man? I plead with you. doesn't make sense, does it? This, This testimony does not make sense. You go ask 100 secular people and it does not make sense. But consider it. Consider it. This is the glorious gospel that has the the power to save the chief of sinners, the foremost sinner. And he is the foremost sinner. That's why he is the example. He is on display for us to see. The longer we stare at the glory of Christ as Paul has, the more we will understand the depths of our depravity. And this is the glory of the gospel. And it's worth preserving Look with me in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwrecked of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme, the second point that we want to consider today is this. We wage the good warfare to defend this glorious gospel. This gospel who saved the chief of sinners and has saved us as well. We defend this glorious gospel because if we begin speaking another gospel, we must recognize that it does not have the power to save. We don't go against false teaching just for the sake of going against false teaching. We go against false teaching because the false teaching does not carry with it news that can save anyone. So therefore, we hold the thing that can save and we steward it. But recognize, remember in its context that this gospel that has been given, there's a charge that Timothy has in verse 3 to teach people not to teach any other doctrine. And then he shows the aim of this charge in verse five, and the aim of this charge is love. It's not conflict for conflict's sake. It's making sure that protect the church with the true gospel and anyone who's teaching something other. Man, let's go after them. Let them know what it is that they're teaching. Doesn't have the power to save. It can't change Saul of Tarsus into Paul. It can't. We see that, verse 18, that Timothy has prophecies that have previously been made about him. We don't know what those prophecies are, but we do know that Timothy was set apart for gospel ministry. We see later on in this book in chapter 4 that elders of the church laid their hands on them. praying for him and asking the Spirit to equip him to do the work of the ministry, giving him gifts to do this. At the very least, we know that these gifts are to help him carry out the ministry in Ephesus, which was difficult, full of conflict, full of false teaching, full of trying to teach the true gospel with an aim and a charge of, of love. And Paul wants him to wage this good warfare in two specific ways, both for him personally and then for the church. Look with me in verse 18 at the towards the end. That you or that by them you would wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. This is what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do: to wage the good warfare of faith, to remember. Daily, the doctrines that have persuaded him unto salvation. Hold to these things. Continue your persuasion in them. Hold to having a good, clean conscience before the Lord and before the church. Another way to say that is to be aware of what is being taught. To be aware of the scope of this gospel message. Don't bend a degree away. Hold to them, wage war for these things. And as Paul writes, the words are for us as well. Mother, father, husband, single person, old member, young member, we are to wage the good warfare to defend this perfect Gospel. We do it first in our lives. We open up our scriptures in the morning and we look and we ask the Lord to give us wisdom in the scriptures to believe rightly on who we were and who Christ has made us to be. Wage the war. Don't go into your scripture reading just thinking that I'm supposed to read. Wage the war. Consider the gospel. Hold the faith. In your marriages, men, And women, my challenge to you men is this wage the war to have a pure heart before a holy God and before your spouse. Fight your temptation. The very man who says, crucify the flesh, do those things. Hold the faith. Hold the gospel. Believe the gospel. It has the power to save your day, your mind in that moment. Hold these things. If you have a family, wage the war in your home. Fight to disciple your children as the darts of the arrow, uh, the flaming darts of the evil one are trying to penetrate your home. Wage the war in discipling them and teaching them to pray and singing praise songs unto the Lord. Wage the good warfare each and every single day. We need to receive this true gospel every single morning. Paul did not receive it on the road to Damascus and then kind of casually think about it. He received it and it kept feeding him for the rest of his life. This is one of the very last letters that he ever writes and he's still calling himself the foremost and he's marveling in the mercies. Remember what he says in the book of Corinthians? I preach Christ in him crucified. He doesn't go outside the scope of that. He stays there because he knows that has the power to bring him from Saul to Paul. From from a non-converted Blair to a converted Blair. And same for you. He also says to make war in defending the church because some have rejected this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he points out two men, Himenaeus and Alexander. We have reason to believe that these were teachers, perhaps even pastors in the church. If we go to Acts chapter twenty, we know that Paul is about to leave Ephesus, and he is telling the church at Ephesus that when I leave, I know that some are going to rise up, fierce wolves among you, and teach bad doctrine. These two brothers could have been in mind. Alexander is mentioned as an opponent of Paul in Acts nineteen. We see Hymenaeus in the second letter that Paul writes. He's the one who's teaching the doctrine of the resurrection of the saints has already taken place. He's believing that all of anybody who believes in Jesus is already raised from the dead. And Paul describes his teaching like spreading like gangrene, like death. These are opponents of the church. But it's not about conflict for conflict's sake. He hands them over to Satan to teach them. Remember, the charge is love. The aim is love. Teach them not to blaspheme. We protect the church. We protect the church here so that the true gospel goes forward in our hearts. And anyone who has another gospel, we we keep out for your sake and for theirs, hoping that they are led to a place of repentance and faith hoping that they too can be brought to a place from Saul to Paul. Because we've learned that the scope of the gospel is not outside of anyone. This changes the way that we even think about evangelism. There's no one in your family or in your workplace that is outside the scope if Paul is public enemy number one at the cross, even Himenaeus and Alexander. We don't know if they ever came to the faith, but we know we have a responsibility to... Guard the gospel that has been entrusted to us. Love is the goal. Well, how do we respond, church? Hopefully, our response is littered in this sermon. We consider the depths of our unworthiness. We marvel at what Christ has done for us as we consider our sin before him. This is a good exercise to remember. It's a good exercise for us to think about all we were apart from Christ. If you're a Christian today, that's a good thing. Or the sins that are being committed throughout the course of your day today so that you can marvel at everything that Jesus has done. The second thing is this that flows right into it so that we can see the heights of his grace and his mercy Saving even the foremost sinners, saving even us. Our prayer and our hope is that we would grow into this mind that Paul has, that we would see ourselves the way that Paul sees himself completely unworthy, in fact, deserving of death, as a blasphemer should be. Yet, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And in church, we protect this good news it is the only power of salvation. Unto those who believe, so we guard this, we protect it. we don't listen to the world, we don't let the world define it, we hold to it. The gospel is the appeal to us as a congregation, both to the Christian and to the non-Christian. If you're a non-Christian, we want you to know this very simply: that sin broke fellowship with the holy God. We see this in the book of Genesis. It's the very first book in the Bible. Sin must be forgiven for fellowship to be restored to to God. We see in the book of Leviticus that it is blood that makes atonement for one's life. There is no other way for fellowship to be restored than by blood being spilt. Now, mercy was given to us, which means it should have been our blood, right? Right? But then grace was given to us because it was the blood of Christ, a gift given to us. And if we believe in it, it has the power to save us, to change our hearts and to change our minds. If you're a Christian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're not, we plead with you that you would, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, says the book of Hebrews. We, as pastors and elders, can think of no greater way to respond to a gospel message such as this than partaking in the Lord's table today. If you are a deacon in the church and have a post in serving the elements, would you please make your way to the front as Pastor Jared is going to lead us in the Lord's table.